Hello, uh, welcome to the podcast All Things Sedation uh, from Dental Ed. Uh, we're a company uh, located in um, British Columbia, Canada, in the Vancouver area, and we specialize in sedation training in the dental profession. My name is Michael Dare, and I'll be hosting quite a few of these talks. Um, my background is I'm the CEO and founder of the company, and um, and one of the head educators. Um, I'm an RN, uh, critical care RN, initially by training with over 30 years experience. Uh, a lot of, lot of that being within areas like uh, emergency department, um, ICU, cardiac surgery, ICU. I'm also an advanced life support paramedic. Uh, used to be a paramedic, uh, one province over in Alberta, uh, doing both ground ambulance work and uh, flight uh, paramedicine. The very last thing I did uh, before I came out to BC and became a nurse uh, quite a few years ago, I must say, uh, was I managed the amulet service for Jasper National Park. So mm, a large piece of my career um, has been uh, teaching in the medical general healthcare profession, uh, courses like um, airway management, ECG interpretation, um, advanced cardiac life support, pediatric advanced life support, trauma management, a whole bunch of these type of courses uh, I taught uh, for many, many years uh, in the general healthcare area until I met a, a dentist who's now a faculty member with us, uh, Dr. Alan Milnes. And uh, Alan was taking a PALS course, uh, pediatric advanced life support, uh, back in uh, 2013 uh, at Kelowna General Hospital. That's uh, one of our medium-sized cities in British Columbia, more in the interior where it's uh, dry and hot and sunny in the summers. Uh, we're out on the coast here. Um, I'm talking today from my home up in Squamish, British Columbia, and uh, we're known for rain, and then we're known for rain, and then we're known for more rain. And we're also known for beautiful backcountry skiing, climbing, and uh, bald eagles. There's a couple of things there for a little bit of an advertisement for Squamish. So um, for uh, this series of podcasts, we're going to be just talking about a variety of sedation topics uh, and also topics in emergency patient care, uh, topics in advanced cardiac life support, because a lot of our listeners are dentists who... Uh, who are taking or have taken uh, sedation training and have to maintain ACLS certification. Um, we're going to talk other emergency topics uh, in general dental, dental office medical emergencies. Uh, and uh, all of these talks are going to be up on our website and uh, freely available as uh, podcast downloads. Uh, so I hope uh, this is a successful endeavor. Now, I must say I'm much more used to talking in a classroom. I spend many, many days a month teaching um, to uh, groups of uh, dentists or, or dental support staff like uh, dental assistants and hygienists. Um, and it's a bit unusual for me just to be sitting in a office, uh, in a home office, uh, talking into a microphone. So bear with me and I hope it goes smoothly. All right, so the first topic that we're going to get into um, for episode one is um, captainography, or what's known as end tidal CO2 monitoring. This is a uh, patient uh, monitoring, uh, what we could nearly call another vital sign. Um, this is a patient uh, monitoring tool that um, 
that has been a mainstay within general healthcare critical care settings for some time. And um, it's only recently started to really find its way heavily into the dental profession uh, for those dentists who are involved in moderate and deep sedation and also uh, dental anesthesiologists, et cetera, involved in uh, full GA of patients. So um, capternography uh, started out uh, really coming into commercial use as far as a ongoing measurable waveform style captainography, also known as quantitative captainography, in the very late 1970s. Uh, by the 1990s, it started to become mainstream in areas like uh, the operating room, ICU, um, recovery rooms even at times, but uh, definitely also in emergency departments. Uh, um, and then by the early 2000s, um, there are standards and guidelines from organizations like the ASA in the United States uh, that started to mandate its use uh, in hospital settings. Um, for um, out-of-hospital uh, basic anesthesia services um, and in-hospital services, the ASA uh, basically uh, mandated starting in 2011 the uh, use of continuous end tidal CO2 monitoring whenever possible for moderate and uh, basically a must be for deep sedation and for general anesthesia. Why is it being slow, so slow to come into dentistry? Um, well, that's a good question. Let me just say this, uh, in the five years since uh, forming dental ed and now working exclusively in dentistry, I see a bit of a disconnect between the medical professions and the dental profession and a lack of uh, really good information um, exchange between the professions. So um, it's late coming uh, and it's well overdue and it's now actually mandated where I live here in British Columbia, it was mandated uh, for moderate and deep sedation and GA. Um, starting in late 2016, I believe, if my memory is correct. And it's now being mandated across the United States in many jurisdictions and in uh, most jurisdictions uh, of the larger areas like Ontario and Alberta and British Columbia here. Um, it's also uh, now part of uh, the requirements in, uh, in sedation uh, as far as patient monitoring. So, um, before I go further, let's just talk about um, what's going on in captainography. Uh, we have a really basic form called colorimetric or qualitative captainography, and that's just basically, well, that's a little device, a plastic device. It costs $20. It has a piece of paper built into it where a chemical reaction occurs, like a litmus paper. It's attached to the end of a, an advanced airway, like an endotracheal tube and then the bag valve mask is attached to it so the uh, inhaled and exhaled gases uh, from the patient are passing by this uh, this uh, paper detector that changes color in the presence of co2 gas so qualitative entitled co2 monitoring is not really ongoing monitoring it's just a very short duration event uh, to help confirm the proper placement of an endotracheal tube uh, one of the scariest things that you can do in emergency airway management or just day-to-day -day airway management like in an operating room is to uh, intubate a patient's esophagus and for that to go undetected. 
that has led to many deaths historically in the realm of anesthesia. Um, and in areas such as uh, myself as a paramedic working in a pre-hospital area where we're transporting patients, there's a lot of patient movement, and also for emergency physicians, etc. Um, one of the very first main uses of captainography uh, was, um, was qualitative uh, captainography with that very inexpensive device. Um, more accurate and uh, much more valuable is the type of captainography called quantitative captainography. That's the machine where you actually have a continuous measurement of the exhaled CO2 content levels uh, of a patient's breath. It's, uh, it's put up on the machine as a graphical form. There's a, uh, several numbers associated with the graph. One is the partial pressure of exhaled CO2, so that's expressed in millimeters of mercury. Typical patient would have uh, a reading between 35 and 45 in a healthy patient. Millimeters of mercury for exhaled CO2 gas. Um, the waveform being created is counted and the number of waves per minute would indicate the respiratory rate of the patient. Um, so that is known as airway respiratory rate um, on many machines and that's basically the most accurate method there is um, to measure breathing um, without sitting there and staring at their chest or putting your hand on their chest and counting the breaths. So uh, quantitative uh, captainography is what we use uh, uh, to ensure that a patient is being properly ventilated with a, with a advanced airway in the right location on a continuous ongoing basis. That's one of its biggest uses to help confirm proper uh, endotracheal tube intubation and to monitor uh, the advanced airways uh, placement and to ensure it has not become dislodged in, um, in the management of patients. That was its initial day-to-day -day use. It's expanded a lot from there, actually. Uh, we now use it in sedation. Um, and how do we use it? Well, our sedated patients don't have advanced airways or should not have advanced airways because uh, both moderate and deep sedation um, are targeting a patient who is still maintaining their own airway and breathing and does not require any type of advanced airway device. So the way we do it is we do what's called side stream captainography, where the patient is either wearing a mask, which would not really work in dentistry, but in dentistry we use the nasal prong technique where there's a specialized uh, captainography nasal prongs that the patient wears. And instead of delivering oxygen, uh, the prongs are actually sucking gas continuously back to the sensor that's back at the monitor. Um, and this is known as side stream uh, captainography, uh, where there's a stream of gas being uh, sucked back towards the machine uh, with a small vacuum pump. And back at the machine, uh, the gas is analyzed uh, using infrared light beams and uh, the relationship about the amount of infrared and what spectrums of the infrared are being absorbed, correlating to the concentration of CO2 gas. Mass spectrometry is being used. And back in the machine, uh, we get a second-by-second um, a -second reading of the amount of CO2 uh, uh, that's being drawn back. The other type is called mainstream captainography, and its only use is to be connected to um, advanced airway devices. 
So in that system, the sensor that's actually analyzing for the gas concentration is not located in the monitor machine itself. It's located right at the site where the device connects to the end of an advanced airway, typically an endotracheal tube. The sensor is built in right to that location where it tees in. And uh, so the device hooks onto the end of the endotracheal tube, the ventilator hosing hooks up to the device, and the sensor is located right there, and it's analyzing the gas that's flowing uh, past. So for mainstream captainography, you need an advanced airway, and uh, the patient is not, um, is not uh, the type of patient that we would see in a sedation setting. So if you're getting a machine, uh, especially if you're ever buying a used one, you have to make sure you're not getting um, a monitor with mainstream captainography because you wouldn't be able to use that in a sedation setting like in a dental office. So we have quantitative, which is ongoing measurement of CO2 expressed on a machine as a waveform and a quantity. And then we have the color metric, qualitative little devices used just for um, confirming a, helping confirm a correct um, endotracheal tube intubation. Um, and then again, we have two other uh, definitions, which is side stream versus mainstream monitoring. So one of the most common questions that I get is, why should I be using it? You know, the dentist says to me, well, um, you know, I'm very careful. I'm right up there by the airway. I'm watching my patient. I'm always knowing that they're breathing. And what I answer there is, is that you might be surprised that you're not as aware of their breathing as you think. I mean, if we really think about the setting of a dental office, um, you can't get more tunnel vision than wearing loops. And then you have a lot of noise going on, so it's hard to hear their breathing. You have your loops on, you have uh, trays uh, swung out over the patient's chest, you have blankets for the patient during sedation to keep them warm. You may have an x-ray bib, uh, just a regular dental bib. Let's just say that it's uh, very hard to actually really know what's going on with the patient's breathing. So unlike many people, there's strong science actually that you can't multitask. So, um, and I've borne this out in anecdotal evidence, uh, that's for sure. Um, when I talk about alarm settings later, you're going to learn about something called apnea delay. Basically, the machine is not going to alarm until it has picked up no breathing for a predetermined length of time. On our machines, we typically set it at 40 seconds. So when we're doing clinical during our IV sedation training, time and time again, I have watched uh, a patient have an episode of apnea. Again, the alarm's not actually going to go off unless it continues for greater than 40 seconds. And I watch the sedation team um, and see if they notice it. And the vast majority of times, they do not notice it. Now, there's a lot of debate whether that apneic episode would ever lead to being harmful, etc. But I'm just talking at this point about they weren't actually aware of the breathing status of the patient. So I think uh, having end tidal CO2 monitoring is what I often uh, call the ultimate uh, sedation seatbelt for safety um, is to me a no-brainer. Um, the other comment often is as well I have oxygen saturation doesn't that tell me that my patient's breathing adequately? Um, 
there's a lot of misunderstanding about oxygen saturation. So in oxygen saturation, we're measuring the, uh, the loading of hemoglobin in red blood cells and it's expressed as a percentage. And the problem with oxygen saturation is there can be an inherently long delay from the moment a patient stops breathing until the oxygen saturation starts to plummet, starts, the patient starts to desaturate. If you have the patient on supplemental oxygen, that delay is even um, prolonging. Uh, it's all about the oxyhemoglobin oxy, oxy dissociation curve and that big, high, long plateau. So if we uh, hyperoxygenate a patient, um, it can take quite a long period of time for their PaO2 to drop down to the 100 uh, or less than 100 reading, which is the point where oxygen saturation starts to drop from 100%. So I've always sort of said that oxygen saturation is like a, a fire detector that possibly might only go off uh, when the building is already significantly engulfed in flames. Would you not prefer a airway breathing slash fire detector that goes off at the first sniff of smoke? Um, yes, it can be irritating with some false alarms, but when you really do have a serious airway breathing sedation emergency, you'll be very glad that you know that something is wrong with the patient's breathing status very, very early in comparison to oxygen saturation. So O2SAT has uses in patient monitoring, but the biggest issue in sedation is there's quite a potential delay of multiple minutes before oxygen desaturation starts to occur um, after a patient stops breathing. And the earlier we can know that we have a compromised airway breathing situation in a patient, the more time we have to turn that around and make sure the patient uh, is breathing, has an open airway, and is not close to what I call falling off the cliff um, into um, the abyss of uh, prolonged respiratory arrest, cardiac arrest, and even death. So what I say to everyone is, is I do not have anxiety when I'm sedating patients, especially moderately sedating them. I just make sure they're breathing well and adequately at all times. And I use my eyes, my ears, I use end-tidal CO2 monitoring, and I use oxygen saturation to give me information about the respiratory status of a patient. So um, let's talk a little about what we see on the screen itself for captainography. Uh, we have a waveform uh, moving across the screen just like an ECG does. Uh, the horizontal axis is time, and the vertical axis is the partial pressure of CO2 gas. So the baseline, usually in most patients, will be zero millimeters of mercury, and that will be occurring during inhalation. And then on the screen, what you see is the line suddenly spikes upwards uh, at nearly, uh, well, at a very, very steep slope. This is the moment of exhalation and the initial upwards uh, curve or line, shall I say, really represents the movement of dead space air out. And then the line moves more horizontally uh, and now it just gently upslopes. And this is where true alveolar gas is now being exhaled. 
um, with its CO2 content. And that gentle, gentle upwards slope then ends suddenly with the line heading back down towards baseline as the patient um, starts their next um, inhalation. It's at the very end of this uh, top hat uh, horizontal line where on the right side of one, uh, one single exhalation and inhalation um, at the right hand side at the very highest level of, of the uh, waveform is where we have the highest concentration of CO2 at the very end of exhalation, hence the term end tidal CO2 monitoring. Uh, it goes back down to baseline and then during inhalation it stays at zero and then the process repeats itself. So every time the line shoots back up to form the next sort of rectangular shaped uh, section, that's the beginning of an exhalation. The machine basically counts the number of those waves per minute and gets a respiratory rate. Um, it also uh, continuously shows you the level of CO2 at that peak end of expiration. Uh, and again, it's expressed in uh, millimeters of mercury. It's usually between 35 and 45 um, in a healthy patient. So we know at all times when a patient is breathing. And we also get information about um, what's going on as far as their levels of CO2 being exhaled. There is a correlation in healthy patients between the partial pressure of dissolved CO2 in the pulmonary blood um, and what the patient's breathing out. It usually has about a three to five millimeter of mercury difference. And the difference is, is that it's three to five millimeters higher in the bloodstream than it is uh, in the pulmonary artery than it is uh, in the exhaled gas. Now, this only really works for healthy people, but luckily in dentistry, we primarily are sedating fairly healthy individuals uh, ranging from ASA 1 through ASA 3, so it does work fairly well. Um, it's not the overall number that's most important, but the trend upwards or downwards in the concentration of CO2. For an example, if a patient is breathing inadequately, not just in respiratory rate, but in um, the mechanics of the volume that they're moving in and out, um, we'll start to see a rise in blood CO2 levels. We'll say that they're retaining CO2. That often will then uh, equate to an increasing level of CO2 in their exhaled breaths. So not only do you get the respiratory rate from uh, captainography, you get an indication of whether the patient is, has a rising blood level of CO2 or a dropping blood level of CO2. So in a patient who's inadequately breathing, they typically will have a CO2 that starts to climb way past 45, and it may uh, exceed 50 millimeters of mercury, and that is a sign of respiratory depression. Even if the rate's okay, even if the respiratory rate's okay, that would indicate to you that the patient is possibly oversedated, they're not effectively ventilating themselves, and, um, and we're starting to see that by a rising um, PA, uh, partial pressure of exhaled CO2. On the other hand, another example would be that we have a lowering level of CO2. So over time, it starts to drop down, say, into the low 20s. This would be what you would see in a patient who's hyperventilating. Um, the length and characteristics of the breaths can be seen in the waveform. So someone who's taking very short and rapid breaths will have a very short 
um, horizontal duration to each wave. Um, and then the height of the wave, uh, if they're hyperventilating, will drop down. So we get, uh, we get more than just respiratory rate information from captainography. So another comment that I've had is that, uh, well, when you're using captainography with the nasal prongs, it's not very accurate. So, you know, I'm not sure I should really get it. It's not the absolute number that's important as far as the amount of CO2. It is correct that often the uh, shape of the waveform is a little more rounded when you're using side stream through things like nasal prongs. And often the numbers are a little lower than the true exhaled CO2 of the patient because the machine is sucking in room air, um, could be sucking in nitrous oxide, etc. And there's a slight dilution of the sample. But really it's what is the upwards trend. You'll know what their end tidal CO2 amount is when they're not sedated and you'll be able to see whether that trends upwards or downwards over time. It is extremely accurate in detecting breathing. There is no way for an end tidal CO2 machine to not know uh, or to tell you that a patient is breathing when the patient is not. It's not possible to be done. So it will absolutely tell you at all times if a patient is having apnea. So the accuracy of the quantity of CO2 is not that important. It's more what happens trend-wise uh, comparing the baseline CO2 when the patient's not sedated to as you sedate them. If you have a continuousing, continuously rising CO2 level, that would indicate hypoventilation and the retention of CO2. If you have a dropping level, that could indicate that the patient has pain and anxiety and is starting to hyperventilate and they're blowing off excessive amounts of CO2, which would be, say, moving them into a respiratory alkalosis. If they're retaining excessive amounts of CO2 due to inadequate ventilations, they'd be going into a respiratory acidosis uh, slowly. So um, that's just a little background information there as far as accuracy, etc. So um, troubleshooting, that's the last big topic that I want to discuss. And then um, in our second talk on, because we're going to have a part B to this, in our more advanced talk, we'll talk about some of the advanced uses, uh, uses of end-tidal CO2 uh, monitoring in medicine, uh, like during advanced cardiac life support and cardiac arrests, um, and uh, also being used in ICUs, etc., to, uh, to help indicate uh, whether uh, various treatments to improve cardiac output and overall uh, patient perfusion are working. So basically the relationship between the movement of blood and the perfusion of the lungs um, and whether that's worsening or improving and then how that affects uh, CO2 levels being exhaled. So one of the biggest comments I get continuously actually about end CO2 monitoring, I had one just the other day during an ACLS course, uh, was that, oh, it is such a pain because it's always alarming. So I really wanted to go through a little bit of the technical aspects of how to set up your CO2 monitor and how to troubleshoot alarms and also how to minimize alarms. So you might uh, not be aware if you haven't done this uh, that one of the most common reasons for false alarms in uh, this type of uh, CO2 monitoring is when a patient mouth breathes. So in dentistry, since we want to... Uh, to have good access to the mouth, we primarily use a nasal prong technique, which requires the patient to be nose breathing. 
and um, it can be a little problematic at times when a patient forgets to breathe through their nose. Uh, but a couple of things can help there. One, uh, prior to sedation, I always discuss what the nasal prongs are for, uh, that they're sucking gas back to the machine. Um, if you don't explain that, then your patient may start to look at you funny because if they've had supplemental oxygen before by nasal prongs, they're going to notice right away that they don't feel a cool sensation at their nose. And you know, they may start to judge you in a negative way, let's say. So on that alone, I always explain to the patient what the prongs are for and that we're not necessarily going to be delivering oxygen and that uh, it's sucking the gas back for analysis. So that's when I'll discuss with them about breathing through their nose and that while they're sedated, they'll probably hear the assistant from time to time asking them politely to breathe through their nose. That definitely helps. Um, the use of a rubber dam helps, definitely, uh, to help assist and get them to nose breathe. And then the other thing that's one of the most important settings that you need to make sure your monitor's set up for is uh, what we call the apnea delay alarm. So sidestream uh, monitoring, sidestream and tidal CO2 monitoring can be set up where the machine is told do not alarm unless you detect no breathing for the following length of time. So on the Eden monitors that we use and we also sell, we um, set it to the max, which is 40 seconds. So what I'm getting at is if your patient mouth breathes for 38 seconds, it's not going to alarm as long as they start breathing again in under 40 seconds through their nose. So the apnea delay alarm basically filters out a lot of intermittent mouth breathing. And it's one of the most important settings that there is on uh, a chairside operatory monitor that has CO2 monitoring. So you need to set it um, to a longer period of time so that all those intermittent mouth breathing episodes that are under 40 seconds will actually not trigger an alarm at all. That being said, you're still going to get some false alarms from mouth breathing, so just be aware of it. Coach the patient to breathe through their nose and, um, and uh, continue to check to make sure that it is a false alarm versus a real one. Um, yes, it is a problem to have too many false alarms, and that's why you need to uh, use these tricks as much as possible to minimize them. But each uh, alarm that comes from apnea is a high-grade alarm on a monitor, and you do need to take them seriously and check the patient. Even though those alarms can be false, some of them are real, but even then it's not a big deal uh, most often because the apnea alarm is telling you there's a breathing issue well before there's any serious physiological issue coming from the patient. What I'm getting at is this. If you rely only on oxygen saturation and you now have a patient's oxygen saturation uh, going down on you quickly, you're basically already uh, well behind uh, the eight ball and you're, you're, you're short on time to fix things. I kind of again say that it's the fire alarm going off when the building's starting to be engulfed in flames and in that type of setting you have to act quite quickly to, um, to fix things. Uh, in some classes, I hold a marker and set it on the table and stand it up a uh, ways from the edge of the table. And I talk about, you know, how far back from the emergency uh, respiratory airway emergency cliff are you? With end tidal CO2, you're a long ways back. 
when you start to have good information that the patient is perhaps over sedated and that you need to slow down in your titrations and then also maybe adjust the quantity of the sedatives that you're giving. With verbal stimulation and verbal tactile stimulation, the vast majority of times that's all we ever have to do. To be honest, I have to tell you that in my entire 35-year career, I have never had to positive pressure ventilate with a bag valve mask a patient during sedation. All right. With end-tidal CO2, you are a long ways back and you have some time to fix the issues because the patient is not even close yet to desaturating usually. So stimulate verbally, add tactile, and in the occasional case, add pain. Um, a little more often the case, perhaps, if you're doing deep sedation. But in moderate, you should not have to add pain. If you're having to use painful stimulus to get a patient to follow commands and take a breath for you, you're actually not in moderate sedation anymore. You're in deep sedation, though it is a continuum. And for sure, people in moderate slip a little into deep at times, and we have to use stimulus. Um, some of the times the stimulus is just, just get in there and do your dentistry stimulus, and uh, we bring them right back into moderate. So, um, so since we are getting such an early indication of a respiratory issue, either from the respiratory rate or a buildup of CO2 in the end-tidal CO2 reading, uh, we're usually able to intervene uh, with a lot of spare time, and they're not even close to falling off the cliff. Um, the falling off the cliff uh, safety mechanisms include painful stimuli like sternal rub, uh, trapezius squeeze, um, fingernail bed squeeze, um, and, uh, and then the ultimate rescue, uh, the use of a bag valve mask. We will breathe for the patient until they're breathing again on their own. And then along with that, the, the final parachutes for the patient as they fall off the cliff is breathe for them. Uh, more painful stimuli, stimuli and reverse the medications if you are using uh, benzos and opiates. So with all that together and a well-trained team uh, using good monitoring equipment, using proper anesthesia principles of titration, and having good training and good equipment. All of this adds up to a very safe environment, uh, very close to being as safe as what you would get inside a hospital, other than not having quite all the backup support as, as what you get in a hospital. So another issue will be that the patient is obviously breathing, yet you're getting no end tidal CO2 waveform. So there's a couple of things that we've noticed there. One is the nasal prongs are acting like a vacuum. So on occasion, we notice that the curved prongs point to the bottom of the nares and actually suck in soft tissue so that the bottom tissues of the nostrils are actually blocking the two cannula openings. When you adjust the cannula, especially if you have a bright light on the patient, you'll actually see two little tiny round circles on the bottom of their nares. Of course, we can have other technical issues like uh, people rolling their chair on top of the tubing. Uh, another issue is that a lot of the tubings have a built-in um, system for capturing water with a water absorption white uh, crystally material. Those extension sets with that absorbing material are typically sold by Respironics, and they're only good for 120 hours. 
and eventually the moisture being collected in there will clog up that tubing and you'll see that you have a very small waveform and you may even hear that the vacuum pump on the machine is going a little more than usual, a little louder than usual, let's just say. So that would indicate that you need to replace the tubing. Um, another issue has to do with something called zero calibration. So we often get phone calls uh, about the monitors um, th that we sell, the Eden brand. They're an exceptional monitor that I'm very impressed with. We've had like two technical issues with monitors having to go back to the distributor in California in about seven years. Uh, so a very, very good track record for reliability. And the vast majority of times when a dental practice calls about the machine, there's nothing wrong with the machine at all. It has to do with uh, the settings of the machine and the fact that people have changed the settings. So we ship out our machines with a baseline document that states these are the base settings for the machine. Please put the machine back in these settings and you will probably find it operates fine. But one thing we also noticed was that um, people are not doing what's called a zero calibration. You have to understand that um, the measurement of gases and the partial pressure, uh, the machine requires a knowledge of what standard atmospheric pressure is um, that day when it's being used. So we do something called a zero calibration where basically the machine is going to open up a port to room air and atmospheric pressure and it's going to calibrate zero baseline on the vertical axis uh, based on that uh, pressure. So if you don't recalibrate and there's a major weather shift in your area with a fairly significant change in atmospheric pressure, what happens is the vertical axis um, is lost, basically. So you'll see a waveform on the machine, yet the respiratory rate and the quantity of entitled CO2 will not read anything. And that's just because you need to recalibrate the sensor. And really, you should recalibrate it every day. In hospital settings, we recalibrate all pressure monitoring sensors at least two times in 24 hours, typically um, a minimal of once per shift for the nursing staff. So what we suggest is that you zero calibrate your entitled CO2 every time you're going to do a sedation day. And uh, on the machines we use, it's a soft touch, uh, it's a touch screen menu. So it's in the settings for uh, the CO2 monitoring. Um, in the exact same region where you have that apnea delay alarm, there's another uh, button that you uh, press that says zero calibration. And that calibration uh, can only occur after the machine and the sensor is warmed up. So when you first turn it on, it'll be grayed out and you can't do it. But um, a little while later, within a couple of minutes, the sensor is warmed up and that button will now show uh, a darker color, meaning that you can touch it and it's gonna do something. And the calibration takes all of about 20 seconds. And once you've done the calibration, now the machine knows that the baseline zero millimeters of mercury um, is equal to straight atmospheric pressure. It now knows the numbering of the vertical axis and it will give you a respiratory rate and, um, and the quantity of entitled uh, CO2 being detected, the partial pressure. So those are some of the troubleshooting things. And I think that uh, wraps up our first talk. I think it went fairly well. 
sure when I listen to myself, uh, I'll have some issues, but uh, hopefully I won't do another take. Um, we're going to do another talk on advanced uses of end-tidal CO2 monitoring. Um, it'll be much shorter. It'll just deal with uh, uses of end-tidal CO2 in uh, particularly ACLS and PALS and in the cardiac arrest setting and how it gets used there. Um, and also a little bit more on uh, the shapes of various waveforms that can indicate a variety of uh, specific situations um, and disease processes. So we'll talk a little about the shapes of the, uh, of the, uh, the graph itself, and we'll talk about its use in critical care settings, and we'll talk about its use in cardiac arrest and in ACLS. And since dentists that do sedation often have to be certified in ACLS, it should be a pertinent topic for most of you. And I imagine that talk will be about 10 minutes versus uh, what we have now, which is about 40 minutes. So thank you very, uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, and uh, we'll try to be putting out uh, several talks a month. So stay tuned. And uh, thank you very much. Bye.